the shoreline one last time together. Feel the wind blow our wandering hearts like a feather. But who knows what's waiting in the wings of time? Dry your eyes, we're gonna go where we can shine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast. One man teasings and the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And today, I finally get to talk about Mike Flanagan's adaptation of Stephen King's 2013 novel, the sequel to one of Stephen King's earliest books, whose original adaptation is considered not just one of the greatest horror movies ever made, but one of the greatest movies, period, ever made. This movie that I'll be reviewing today, of course, is Dr. Sleep. And guys, I'm very excited to talk about it. I almost said excited um, because that's how my daughter says the word excited. So I'm very excited to talk about this movie today. Uh, this is when I read listener email or iTunes reviews or get into Stephen King news. I'm not doing any of that. I am just jumping right into uh, the Wikipedia summary um, so I have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. So let's get into this, guys. Dr. Sleep from Wikipedia. In 1980, sometime after escaping the Overlook Hotel and nearly escaping the attempt on their lives by Jack Torrance, Danny Torrance and his mother, Wendy, live in Florida. Scarred by his experiences at the hotel, Danny is haunted by one of its ghosts, the rotting woman of room 237. Through The Shining, the ghost of Dick Holleran teaches him to lock such ghosts in imaginary boxes in his mind. Meanwhile, a cult of quasi-immortal vampires known as the True Knot, led by Rose the Hat, feed on steam, produced in the dying moments of people with the Shining ability to slow their aging. In 2011, Danny, now going by Dan, is still traumatized by his time at the Overlook and has become an alcoholic to suppress his shining. He moves to a small town and befriends Billy Freeman, who gets him a job and becomes his AA sponsor. Dan begins to rehabilitate and soon finds a job at a hospice where there is a cat who goes to patients who are dying. Danny uses his shining to comfort dying patients who give him the nickname Dr. Sleep. He also begins receiving telepathic communications from Abra Stone, a young girl whose shining is even more powerful than his. Meanwhile, Rose recruits a teenager named Snakebite Andy into her cult, and after observing her ability to telepathically control people. In 2019, the True Knot are starving. They abduct a young boy named Bradley and torture him to death to extract as much steam as they can. A teenage Abra senses the event, and her distress alerts both Dan and Rose. Rose sets her sights on Abra, planning to extract her steam to sustain the cult. Realizing that Rose is after her, Abra visits Dan and says that she can track the cult if she can touch Bradley's baseball glove, but Dan insists that she stays away and avoids drawing attention to herself. That night, Rose enters her astral form and successfully enters Abra's mind. However, Abra easily retaliates by entering Rose's mind and injuring her hand. Wounded, Rose returns to her body and sends the true knot to capture Abra. 
The cat leads Dan to an empty room where he has another visit from Holloran, who instructs him to protect Abra. Dan tells Billy about The Shining, and they travel to the murder scene and exhume Bradley's body to retrieve his glove. They then go to Abra's house, where they recruit her father and Dave <clears throat> and devise a plan. The father, Dave, and devise a plan. Using an astral projection of Abra as bait, Dan and Billy lure the cult members out and shoot most of them dead, although Snakebite Andy telepathically manipulates Billy into killing himself before she dies. Rose's lover, Crow Daddy, kills Dave and abducts Abra, dragging her, drugging her to suppress her shine. Dan communicates with Abra, who allows him to possess her temporarily and force Crow Daddy to crash his car, killing him and freeing Abra. While Dan and Abra reunite, Rose consumes the cult member's remaining stockpile of steam, healing her wounds and vowing revenge for their deaths. Dan decides to return to the abandoned Overlook, believing it will be as dangerous for Rose as it is for him and Abra. He starts up the, co the hotel's boiler and explores the building, awakening it as in the process. Dan revisits the rooms where his father, Jack, influenced by the Overlook, attempted to murder him and Wendy. At the hotel bar, Dan is offered whiskey by Lloyd, a bartending ghost who resembles his father. They both discuss what drives a per person to alcoholism, the ghosts of the past, and troubles of the present, while alcohol becomes the medicine. Lloyd insists Dan take the drink, but he refuses. Once Rose arrives at the hotel, Dan and Abra confront her by pulling her into the astral plane in the form of the Overlook's hedge maze. After a failed attempt to trap her in one of the boxes, Dan instructs Abra to flee before being overpowered by Rose. As she drains his steam, Dan releases the Overlook's ghost from his boxes who surround and kill Rose. However, the ghosts possess Dan, who begin to hunt for Abra. When she manages to momentarily free him, he tells her to flee the hotel. Struggling with possession, Dan returns to the boiler room, which becomes engulfed in flames. In his last moment, Dan sees a vision of himself as a child being embraced by his mother, Wendy. Abra watches helplessly as the hotel burns down. Sometime later, Abra talks to Dan's spirit, assuring each other that they will both be okay before he disappears. Abra's mother, Lucy, adjusts to her daughter's powers, including a communication from the spirit of her deceased husband. Abra is confronted by the ghost of the rotting woman from the Overlook and prepares to lock up the ghost just as Danny did. Okay, guys, so let's review um, Let's review the movie. So when I left the theater last night, I, was, I just kind of stayed against the wall um, while my wife went to the bathroom, and I just listened to people and their reaction as they left. And I saw some people shaking their heads. I saw some people talking about it not being scary. Um, and then online, over the, the last week since it's been out, uh, you know, I, I've seen that there was a lot of people who liked this movie that didn't like the book. And of course, it really underperformed at the box office. So I was just looking at all different reactions from people regarding this movie, from in person, seeing how they felt when they left the theater, online the uh the thoughts of the movie have been generally positive and then unfortunately that all of this didn't really lead to a, a big uh slam dunk at the box office which isn't a you know it, it it's not an indicator of whether a movie is good or not um but i am saddened that mike flanagan wasn't able to celebrate 
this movie the way that I would have liked for him to because what he managed to do here what he managed to do here was something truly remarkable because from the second I saw the original trailer for this this movie to the time I stepped in the theater I wondered how Mike Flanagan was going to be able to manage adapting a book that most King fans hate that also happens to be a sequel to one of the greatest films ever made. That takes a big pair of balls uh, to acknowledge that and, and, and make this movie. And he did it. He made a really good movie that works on multiple levels, even if it might not be recognized or celebrated in its time. Um, there's going to be a lot of love for a long time about this particular movie. And he was able to give us something of quality by not mimicking Kubrick. Um, he really he really was his own visionary. Um, he, he stayed true to what makes his stories work. And if anyone has ever seen a... Uh, Mike Flanagan original story or something that he has adapted based on you know previous work I mean he's got the goods whether it's um, Oculus or Hush or um, The Haunting of Hill House which I think is just his um, you, you can watch The Haunting of Hill House and then if you if you had known that he was going to do a sequel to The Shining and never saw anything that he had done before and then watched The Haunting of Hill House, you can say, okay, yeah, no, I, I can see that. I can see why he would he would be the guy for that. Because he's... The Haunting of Hill House um, really is... As, as much as Doctor Sleep is a sequel and a companion piece to The Shining, it also pairs very, very nicely to The Haunting of Hill House. What we get is a movie with incredible craftsmanship, impeccable staging, shots, performances, um, and, and quiet scenes. It's a long movie, and there's a lot of plot that drives this story forward. Um, and there's some scares, um, but Flanagan understands that he also has to deliver those quiet character moments that, I'm going to say it, make the story shine. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of the the scenes of Ewan McGregor as Danny as Dr. Sleep, the titular character, but the persona that he takes on um, as the orderly in the hospice. There are, I think we see two scenes where he guides someone um, into death. And it's beautiful. I'm going to go more into this about the function of his role as Dr. Sleep in this book later on, um, actually very soon. But um, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, this is a story that is about ghosts. It's about hauntings. It's about us being haunted by our past um, and how those hauntings um, get in the way of us being able to live our best selves and overcoming those ghosts. Um, and for all of this talk of, of living and ghosts to have a character be able to look beyond life and help people pass the pain of what life brings and help guide them into 
the next step. There is, there is an elegance, and I'm going to get to the word dignity. There is a dignity there um, that I think is, is, I think it was really well done in the book, and it's very, very well done here, um, part because uh, Flanagan knows how to let his actors just act, and McGregor's uh, tenderness in these scenes uh, really sells his role as Dr. Sleep. So I just spent a couple minutes talking about how beautiful these quiet moments are as character beats and thematic beats to the overall story. But let's get back to the fact that this is a, a story that is the sequel. I don't like using that word either. I don't consider it a sequel. I consider it a companion piece. That's how I've been referring it to people. This is a companion piece. So this is a companion piece to one of the scariest movies ever, ever made. Um, and while it's not soul-splittingly terrifying the way The Shining is, The Shining is a, the, the Kubrick version of The Shining is a, a, a tonal nightmare from sound, from the, just the, the sound, the music, the images, everything that Kubrick did, he, he washes, it's a, it's a dark tonal poem that just washes over you. Um, so it's not that. This, this movie is not that movie. And, but even though it isn't, I, I do need to give Mike Flanagan credit here because there are scenes that are incredibly unsettling. So when uh, Mrs. Massey lurches out of the abyssal blackness of room 237 at the beginning of this movie, that's really creepy. It's really, really well done. For our first introduction to the true knot um, when Violet is abducted um, when Rose the Hat has lured her down um, and is keeping her distracted and one by one the the spaces between the trees start to get filled by the unmoving members of the true knot it's very very creepy and then there's the death of Bradley Trevor which is one of the most upsetting things that I've seen on screen in a long time partially because of just the content the book the, the scene in the book um, is is very hard to read um, and it's it's not any easier to watch in in this movie uh, and in part because uh, Jacob Tremblay does such a good job at at selling the the pain of his death and the terror but all of that all of that coalesces into incredibly terrifying and soul-crushing moments um, that shows that if Flanagan had wanted to create a movie that was pure horror, he could. But that wasn't the intent of um, his vision as writer-director. Also, the dude wrote and directed this. This wasn't by committee. Um, and the fact that Warner Brothers gave him the... They just stepped aside and they let him do this, um, knowing that they were giving him the reins to an incredibly profitable IP based on iconography of, like I said, one of the, the most famous movies ever made. That's, that's a big sign of good faith that Warner Brothers had in one of their creative talents, and it was warranted. Warranted. This man knows how to write for 
film and he knows how to make that film and he knows how to work with his actors and it works really really well um so i should say right now that if you want like really deep thoughts on this on dr sleep um you should check out my last episode in which i re-released my review of the book and because for the most part the this movie is very similar to the book uh, a lot of my thoughts from the book are applicable to the movie and actually um, you're able to get a good understanding of things that I'm not going to talk about as much in here like the true knot um, and, and why they function the way that they do um, so just if I would act so I would say this I would recommend that you check out Dr. Sleep my review of the book that was I published it um, a few years ago, but I republished it um, last week because I knew that the movie was coming out. So if you haven't listened to that review, um, or if you have listened to it but haven't listened to it in a while, um, you should check it out because it's a good encapsulation of what makes this story work well. Um, I, within it, I acknowledge that it's a, a story that isn't really beloved by fans, and one of the reasons why it's not beloved by fans is because it is not The Shining, um, which I don't believe is a reason to dislike something. Um, and what's funny here is that there are a lot of people that did not like the book that liked the movie. And to me, that makes me think that they actually like the book. Um, because up until the very end, it, the book, the movie is so similar to the book. So if you're liking the movie and you say that you didn't like the book, chances are you actually did like the book. And if you and it's clear here that Mike Flanagan saw what the book was and loved it for what it is and didn't try to give us something that it was not. Okay, so yes, there are, there are some scary scenes um, in this movie that are really, really well done that I talked about, but it doesn't have to be scary. That is the thing that makes this story work that well because... It is not meant to be a horror movie. It's going to be um, cataloged as a horror. It was marketed as a horror. It will be referred to as a horror. It will be judged as a horror. Honestly, I don't know quite what to call it. Um, that's why I just keep calling it a companion piece. It's kind of in its own genre. Um, it's a little bit thriller. It's a little, and I don't like using thriller as a highbrow version of horror, but um, I guess you can call it horror. I mean, horror encapsulates so much, but it's not what you would consider your, your traditional horror to be. Um, <clears throat> because the function of this story, um, it is designed to be the inversion of The Shining in every conceivable way. So here's where we get to the real nitty gritty of what Dr. Sleep is. And what it is, is it cannot function without our knowledge of The Shining, but I really commend first Stephen King and Mike Flanagan for not giving into temptation and just giving us a recreation of the thing that we liked the first time around and instead give us something that speaks to the original, that plays off the original. And in this case, Ziggs, 
where the original zagged. So let's think about this. The first book is defined by the, the claustrophobia that comes from three characters confined in one particular setting. Okay? That is the conflict of The Shining. Here in Doctor Sleep, we don't have that isolation. We have the opposite. We have the entirety of the open roads of the United States of America. We have Ohio. We have New Hampshire. We have Colorado. We have Florida. It opens up the world, whereas the original was defined by a very claustrophobic, centralized location. This one is defined by the open road and an open America where dangers can lurk on any street and down the road just out of sight. Okay, so there's that. The Shining was defined by tragedy. It is the, um, we watch this family completely get torn asunder and corrupted and disintegrates before our very eyes. It's a tragedy, okay? Whereas The Shining was a tragedy, Dr. Sleep is a triumph, all right? The Shining was the, the, the fall of this family and the Dr. Sleep is the rise of the family. Um, the family, in this case, just it's being the, 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 the resurrection and the triumphant um, reclamation of, uh, of his soul um, by Danny Torrance. Um, the, the family component is, is more literal in the book. Um, so in, spoiler alert for the book, but in this movie, Abra is calling Danny Uncle Dan, right? And that's part of their joke to sort of, you know, make it seem as that, that their relationship is not creepy, right? Um, but in, in the book, it is literal. Um, there is a reveal in the third act that Danny and Abra are related, and Danny is, in fact, her uncle because Jack had had an affair prior to the events of The Overlook. And just due to the, the, the Stephen King's supernatural forces, uh, the way that things work in his books, the, there's, a, there's always a convergence uh, of these sorts of things. Um, it's the coming together of the white, um, that's the term for it, uh, where the, the characters are able to come together um, to combat some sort of evil. Uh, the, the, this, the, so in the, in the book, when I say that The Shining was about the destruction and the ruination of this family and the over and uh, Dr. Sleep is the rise of this family, um, it's very literal because Danny lost his family in the first book and then he's been able to resurrect his family in a healthy way um, in, in the companion piece sequel. In The Shining, we have inhuman monsters that exist only to terrify. And they are monsters for a child's story. They are boogeymen without pathos um, or want other than um, to scare you and to prey on you. Um, you know, so it, it, the, the fact that Danny was a child in The Shining speaks to those childhood fears. And in Doctor Sleep, we don't get that. We have more human uh, monsters here. So we had inhuman monsters in the first one, and then here we have very human monsters um, with complexities 
and um, their desires and we spend time with them and we understand how they work even though we don't agree with what they're doing they they have their own version of love and they have their own needs and I mean Rose is shopping in a grocery store at one point I mean you, so I mean that that is purposeful that is absolutely purposeful because we are given a human a humanistic antagonist whereas the first one had um, inhuman antagonists okay in the first one you see there's a lot of this in the first one we had our three characters who were hunted and preyed upon by these villainous monsters and in dr. sleep we have our main characters not being the hunted really they're always at a position of power and they in fact are the hunters all right, this is, and it goes back to this being triumphant. All right, this is, this is a celebratory reclamation of power and identity and taking control of your own life and weaponizing your trauma against those that want to do your harm, do you harm. Um, so this is celebratory. Okay. Um, then in the the shining with. Um, with, with the, the character of Jack Torrance, especially from the, the movie, this is about the person that you should trust the most, okay? Doing the most harm to you, trying to kill you, all right? That's The Shining. And here in Dr. Sleep, you have strangers who will surround you to save you, right? It's all about people who are not family coming together to, be, to save each other. To, to save Danny, to save a little girl. And then of course there's the alcoholism of it all. So in uh, The Shining, we have Dan who succumbs to his alcoholism and the consequences that come from that and the horror that springs from that. And then here on the flip side of things, we have Danny who is able to successfully combat the alcoholism and we have the flip side of the redemption that comes from that. So, like I said, this is a, a story that purposefully zigs where the shining zagged. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's very bold that first Stephen King and then Mike Flanagan go ahead with this. I would say it's even more bold for Mike Flanagan because he approached this with understanding that in the fan community um, and the public reception around Dr. Sleep, while being a bestseller, obviously, is not really beloved. And I'm sure that there was pressure to make it more like The Shining, but in doing so, it would lose sight of what Dr. Sleep is and the function of Dr. Sleep and why it's necessary for this story to play out the way that it does in a way that is completely opposite. Um, um, but I, I think that it, it, I just should take a moment to discuss the, how this is the, the, the heart of the movie, this and, and the trauma of the events that occurred um, within The Shining for Danny and what that means for Danny in the present and that expresses itself through him battling the, the literalization of the ghosts of his past through alcoholism, through rage, um, the, the, the same ghosts that haunted his father, right? So alcoholism is woven into the DNA of this story um, through Danny battling the ghost of his father, um, 
becoming, you know, st- stepping into the role of his father, you know, in, in the early portions of the story before finally putting that ghost to rest, so to speak. While simultaneously we have the true knot, who are addicts. That's what they are. Um, that is also a sign of just good storytelling. And this is why I like the, the, the we spend so much time with them. And this is why it's important for them to not just be um, inhuman ghosts that we don't get to, you know, like I'm fine with, with not spending time with Horace Derwent um, or the twins or knowing what the twins are doing when they're not haunting the hallways, right? Like I don't, I don't need that. We had that. Um, but now in uh, Doctor Sleep, I'm glad that we get characters, villainous characters that we spend time with to watch them through their addiction. And that's what they are. They're addicts. Um, so I, I like that we have this, the, the, the duality um, and uh, these foils for, for one another. Someone that's been able to beat uh, his addiction to reclaim his soul and then the others who have given up their soul to constantly chase their addiction. Um, and one is defined by dignity and the other is um, undignified. So Danny has grace and dignity about him because he's been able to make these changes to be a better person and in, um, in doing so he's able to help spread that dignity and give people that dignified death. Whereas the true not, um, when Danny is able to ease people into death, these are people that are defined by torturing people to death in order for them to continue their lives. So one is about the acceptance of death and the other one is about um, you know, the, 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 the undignified quality that comes from um, you know, pushing death off as long as you can and, and, and sort of lying to yourself about it. Um, so again, we have wonderful foiling going on here. Um, so some people have referred to this as the X-Men in the Stephen King world. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I, I think that the description is a little too cute. Uh, but, I, you know, there, there are some comparisons, I guess, that, that can be made. Um, so this is, the reason I say that is because I did want to talk a moment about a scene that literally took my breath away. Um, I thought it was so well done. And that was when Rose went into Abra's mind and she started to project herself and she was backlit against the stars and then she was flying, but it was vertical and she was flying she was approaching the clouds, but it looked like she was flying up and the heartbeat sound was occurring. It was this incredibly immersive experience that, uh, wow, that I, I just, that to me was just, it was not what I had seen from Mike Flanagan before, but he was able to give us something that was very abstract. So one, one thing that happens in King's books a lot is the, these mental moments. Um, whether it be um, Susanna in the Dogen in Song of Susanna or um, what else do we have? We have, um, oh, Jonesy in Dreamcatcher. He has this mental space for himself. So King is always able to create these, these mental um, locations that take place within someone's mind to 
um, provide uh, the reader an understanding of, of what's occurring, something that you can grasp. And what Mike Flanagan did here was he was able to do this in a way that was truthful um, and somehow not make it cheesy because you always run the risk of, of when you're visualizing something like this, it can take the reader out. But I thought that this was so, so well done. I really have to give him credit. Now, I think it was last week or the week before, whatever one of my previous episodes were post um, it chapter two, one of the listeners asked me what I would, you know, I talked about how I wasn't happy with the conclusion of it chapter two and how it, 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 it kind of shied away from really getting into the, the ritual of Chud and what I would have done with the ritual of Chud. Well, my answer now is to just ask Mike Flanagan because I feel that Mike Flanagan probably would be able to give us something um, closer to what the ritual of Chud was in the book um, and be able to make it thrilling and um, tactile while also being spiritual and existential. All of that in Doctor Sleep, the, the way that it went down, actually all of the, the mental components from the, the boxes in the hedge maids um, to Rose getting knocked out by Abra and going flying through the clouds and being thrown back into her body, which then goes flying off the top of the Winnebago. Like th there is such a, a like a, a physicality to it in a way that I didn't expect. Um, and like I want to watch the movie again just for that scene because that scene was dope. Okay, um, so I I know that. This review is kind of a lot of loose thoughts, um, which is fine. Um, and so I want to get onto some more loose thoughts right now, um, which is the, the fact that Mike Flanagan had to adapt a book that was a sequel to a book whose movie, to which this is also a sequel, <laughs> was radically different from the original book. And somehow Flanagan manages to successfully merge all three of these different stories in a way that is admirable and a miracle um, in its own way. So let's talk about the ending to The Shining, the book. Um, in the book, the hotel blows up. Okay, so that's a pretty big uh, deviation from what we are given in the movie of The Shining. So in the book, it blows up and Dick lives. Jack redeems himself, he saves his soul. Um, so I'll talk about Jack in a little bit, but let's talk about Dick Holleran here. Um, so when Dick shows up in Dr. Sleep, the book, at least at first, he's alive. Uh, Dick winds up dying uh, off page um, at one point, uh, and I'm glad that we don't see it. it. It really just illustrates when Danny is just being an alcoholic uh, loser. Um, nomadic lifestyle. He's just given up all uh, all relationships and earthly attachments, and he doesn't have a grand goodbye with with Dick. Um, but Dick does play a role in in Doctor Sleep. He does give Danny that 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 pep talk um, in the beginning of the story when Danny is still a child in the aftermath of the Overlook except it's not Wendy who's calling on, on Dick to help him out um, here because the, the character had died 
in uh, the the movie, it, it makes sense to just have this character speak to Danny as a ghost, um, a friendly ghost. Um, and Dick here being played by Carl Lumley, um, where my Martian Manhunter fan's at. Uh, and he does a really, really good job. I'm actually going to get into the casting a little bit, um, so I don't want to get too ahead of myself. Um, but I thought that he was—I thought he was great as uh, as Dick Holleran. Okay, Jack Torrance. And again, I'm going to talk about Jack in more detail later. But um, <clears throat> the problem that Flanagan faced here was that the book Jack and the movie Jack are completely different characters, and their function in each story that they exist within creates a different relationship for Danny. All right, so the Danny from Dr. Sleep has a much, much different uh, relationship and memory of his father than the movie Danny of Dr. Sleep, played by Ewan McGregor, who is haunted by the ghost of Jack Nicholson at his craziest performance. So this was also something that uh, Mike Flanagan had to somehow reconcile, and I will get more into that. And another thing that he had to reconcile was the iconography of all of this. To craft a movie in the shadow of Kubrick's movie that has Jack Nicholson in it, that has Shelley Duvall in it, um, that has Scatman Carruthers in it, that has the twins, that has Horace Derwent and Lloyd. Um, so, I mean, th there, there's the images and the performances that we received in that, that original movie have been imprinted on our pop culture collective memory um, since the movie was released, what, 40 years ago? So there is a massive uphill battle that Mike Flanagan has to, um, has to climb in order for him to tell the story because he can't tell it in the vacuum. He needs to do something here. So he was presented with two options. One option is to go the digital route um, and do, you know, performance capturing sort of thing. You know, he, he could do something along the lines of uh, what Marvel does, uh, where they de-age um, actors. We saw that with, uh, with Michael Douglas in the Ant-Man movies, with Kurt Russell in Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, with Nick Fury and Captain Marvel, um, and I guess it just happened in Terminator Dark Fate. So that was an option to uh, digitally de-age um, actors, or you could have it a, a complete uh, CG rendering, uh, like Gemini Man uh, that, that just came out. But Flanagan decided not to do that. Um, Flanagan uh, believed, if I remember the interviews correctly, that that would be, it would be too off-putting for what he was attempting to, to do with his story, um, and it would take people out of, of the scene. Um, and I agree with that. I do agree. I think that it's one thing if you're watching an action movie or a comic book movie um, or a sci-fi movie where there's a suspension of disbelief on a different plane of entertainment. Um, where you can see an actor play a younger version of him or herself, um, like the, your expectations and your emotional responses are not attuned to the, the, the storytelling experience the same way that your expectations and your um, 
and your emotions are attuned to a horror movie. And it probably would lessen the blow of the horror if you were just watching a technical achievement and knowing that it is a technical achievement and saying, oh, wow, that looks like a, a really young Jack Nicholson. Hey, did you know that Jack Nicholson came in and he filmed his scenes and they digitally de-aged him? Because that's what would be going on in your mind as, as you were watching it. So it would create a barrier um, that, would, that would be filled with movie-making know-how that would get in the way of, of watching that if he had gone with, a, um, with that particular special effect option. Instead, what he did, and this is a difficult choice that he had to make, he had to cast actors for these iconic roles rather than the digital performances. But between this and The Haunting of Hill House, Mike Flanagan has demonstrated that he has a knack for this. Whether it be um, the all of the actresses that he got to play uh, Carla Gugino's daughters in the, the Haunting of Hill House, how they all in some way kind of physically resemble her, um, but they also are able to bring you know great performances as well. So it's not just casting for looks. To the I, I every now and then like I'm I'm not joking, but every now and then I will just be sitting somewhere or doing something or grocery shopping or sitting at my desk or or whatever raking my yard which i have to do again later yo listen i spent 10 hours last week going at my lawn my front yard and my back lawn i got my leaves done that yard was clean okay and that wasn't the first time this season all right i had already done my backyard twice i already did my front yard twice um but this was the bulk of the leaves 10 hours um three hours on saturday uh, and seven hours on, on Sunday um, last week to do leaves. Leaf free, okay? They're back. Okay, not, not as bad as they were, but I'm looking out at, at my yard and, and, and there's more, there's more. So I have, to, I have to go back out there because I want to enter the, the, the winter season with a leaf free lawn. I just wanna give my future spring self the gift of not having to do spring cleanup. Anyway, um, as I was saying that, I will just be living my life, whether I'm, I'm raking leaves or mowing over the leaves or dousing my lawn in uh, gasoline and burning the leaves, um, or you know, washing dishes or whatever. But like every now and then, I will just stop and I'll think to myself and marvel at the casting that we got in *The Haunting of Hill House* when Henry Thomas and Tim Hutton played the same character at two different ages. That was such thoughtful casting. To have two actors of that look similar, that can give the same kind of type of performance, that have that that quiet empathy that both of them have, um, he is good at casting, and he is good at match casting for different roles, and so he he did it again here, giving us Carl Lumley as Dick. Um, and, and having it not mimic. That's another thing that he that he, he, he is able to do is he's able to cast and not have mimicry. And that was important here that we couldn't get too lost in actors just doing what previous actors had done, which I don't want to do a, um, uh, put something down to raise something up. 
I, I, I really try to avoid that, but I, I think that the um, comparison is apt right now, and it's no fault of the actress, um, but we have actors here who are in some way reminiscent of the actors that originally existed in The Shining, but they're allowed to give their own performances without mimicking. And then in Castle Rock, we have Lizzie Kaplan, who's doing like a Kathy Bates impersonation, and it makes me uncomfortable, you know, and it, it takes me out of it. Uh, but here we have, and, and what I liked, what we have with the, the, the actors being able to give their own versions is there is a, though we don't spend a lot of time with her, there is sort of a redemption for the Wendy Torrance character, who famously in The Shining, the movie, that performance is, I mean, it's perfect for the movie, but there is a helplessness with that character that is completely different from the book character, who is a strong, strong woman. Um, and we get a sense that this Wendy in this movie is a really good combination of the book Wendy that we never got to see and the 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 iconic Shelley Duvall performance. So it's a good merging of these two. I spoke about um, uh, Carl Lumley, um, the, the the child that plays young Danny. Um, what, what he does well is again, like it, it's the understanding of the function of the story that you're telling. So Stanley Kubrick created a, a movie that was just this tonal assault um, that, that just, wrapped this this strange unreality around you so the the child who played Danny um, played someone that is just constantly reacting in these these horrible um, sort of dream logic ways you know and the the actor who's playing Danny here has to reflect that but at the same time kind of function more as like a child living in the real world um, and we get that um, okay, and then we have uh, let me let me talk about uh, Jack Torrance. I didn't know what they were gonna do going into this movie. Um, I didn't know like at one point on Twitter, I, I I think I said something about like, are they gonna digitally insert Jack Nicholson or something? Uh, they didn't, and I'm glad that they didn't. That like I said, for all the reasons I just said, that that would not have been the, the right decision. But when Ewan McGregor goes to the bar in the Overlook, actually, let, let me back up. Let me talk about the, the ending, the, the, the ending here, um, because this is it's worth talking about. Because um, leading up to this, for the most part, everything is is very very similar to the events of the book, um, and the ending is is a is a major departure. So, the ending of the 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 book, I think one of the things that I had mentioned in in the podcast actually was that. I had wanted a more overt um, nod to The Shining. As much as I liked the Doctor Sleep for, for zigging where The Shining zagged, there's still a fan in me that wanted um, some kind of showdown with The Overlook, which we weren't able to get because The Overlook had, had blown up and I had suggested some sort of Danny using his shine with with Abra Abra to create um, like an astral version of the Overlook populated by the ghosts. Um, 
and this is what we get. Like, it's crazy that Mike Flanagan read my mind using his own shine and was able to give me, uh, was able to give me what I had wanted. Um, I don't know if it's what I should have gotten, um, but I know that I had asked for it when I read the book and Mike Flanagan gave it to me. And what is crazy about this is that until the point when Danny enters the Overlook, Danny is functioning in an adaptation of a Stephen King book. It feels like a Stephen King story, especially new Stephen King um, in the last decade or so, um, last actually 15 years or so. It feels like what it, it really mirrored the reading experience that you get with Stephen King. It had the rhythms, it had the beats, it had the cadence, it had the heart, it had the, um, the character interactions. Um, that it, and it had um, the, the confidence and capable characters being able to combat good alliteration uh, the, the villains, um, which which we get a lot more of in our uh, in, in in new Stephen King stories. Um, but the second that Danny walks into the Overlook, he steps out of a Stephen King story and he steps into the Kubrick version. So, since the release of The Shining, the movie, there has been a war, a pop cultural war, between the two versions of this movie. And Stephen King has been on the, the, the front lines of this war, um, just lobbing grenades at Stanley Kubrick for what he believes... Um, he well he just he doesn't like what Stanley Kubrick did to his story uh, so that it, it's been discussed to death I discussed it myself in my review of the um, the shining the, the the Kubrick version um, and I discussed it in in dr. sleep the the, the book um, review but Mike Flanagan had to reconcile this and he did he somehow managed to be able to give us a Stephen King story and then be able to give us the the Kubrickian version at the same time without it being like slavishly homaging um to to, to Kubrick it, it it I don't know I, it might the mileage might vary from viewer to viewer whether or not it's it's a jarring um adjustment or whether it's a seamless um piecing together of the the two different styles and the two different stories but um you know, for me at this point, it starts, the story starts hitting on another level because there's, he literally is stepping into the world of someone else. Um, and that's actualized within the movie when Danny is stepping into the Overlook. And again, like, so this is kind of where I take my critic hat off. I just put my fan hat on and it's just so cool to see him walking through these hallways and the lights are starting to come on and he has to wake it up and again I had spoken earlier of weaponizing trauma and I think that there is something about that to take the thing that harmed you the most and then turn it and put it back on someone that wants to do you harm um, in a fictional world there is validation and there's redemption in there in a real real world I don't know if there is so I'm not saying that that is healthy or therapeutic I'm just saying in the story that's being told of redemption, um, it, it does allow for some level of celebration. So, yeah, it just becomes a, a crazy Kubrickian uh, experience when he starts walking down the hallways, and yes, we get to, to visit these 
famous moments from uh, the the movie as the Overlook is waking up, and then he goes to the bar. And we, you know, we don't see, we don't see the the bartender at first. And you know, I'm thinking at first that it's just um, Lloyd. Uh, I, 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 that's who I thought it was going to be. But then Danny's the way that Danny is having the conversation. His pronoun starts to change. He starts to refer less abstractly and more directly to the bartender. Um, and I start to realize that he is talking to the ghost of his father. And then, um, then there's this level of anticipation with me as a viewer, like, oh my god, what, what, what are we gonna, what are we about to get? What are we about to, what's, what is about to happen here? And the pan back reveal of Henry Thomas as Jack Torrance, I thought was so clever. Okay, and I love how Henry Thomas is just the MVP, the stealth the stealth MVP of Mike Flanagan stories in terms of casting. <clears throat> but it made perfect sense to do it the way that he did because we had seen, as established in the Kubrick film, there's a doppelganger, dreamlike unreality of identity where characters are characters but not the characters they say they are. And we get that here. Um, we get a ghost that may or may not be his father. So if it doesn't quite look like Jack Nicholson, that's okay. That is okay. Because it could be a couple things. It could be that the memory that Danny has of his father um, is not that crisp anymore. So the Overlook, if the Overlook is trying to use his mem the memory of his father against him, it would stand to reason that it's not an exact lookalike. Or you could say that it is the ghost of Jack Torrance, but it's the ghost of Jack Torrance sort of merged with the thing that corrupted him in the first place, which was alcohol. Therefore, he's kind of the bartender at the same time. So that doubling and that blurring of identity um, it works on multiple levels, and I really, really admire the decision-making by Mike Flanagan to do that. Um, and again, it was a performance that was itself and allowed to be itself. Kind of had some echoes of Kubrick and Jack Nicholson, but it wasn't this distracting mimic of uh, the original performance. Um, but that, to me was so as a fan I was really excited and then I just really had to give him credit for, for going there and doing this it was a really good way to, to go about it and then on top of it all um, once Danny is able to uh, defeat Rose the Hat again weaponizing his trauma and unleashing the ghosts which is a, um, I had said this in my review of Dr. Sleep, but it's a very Jurassic World moment where the, 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 the T-Rex from the original movie is able to come out and save the day. So our villains, the, the monsters of the first movie, are able to dispatch the, the, the monster of the new movie. Um, 
but the expense of Dan's soul, right? So this is a major departure from the book. And what Mike Flanagan does here, which is crazy, is in his adaptation of Doctor Sleep, creating a new movie that is both merging um, Doctor Sleep, the book, with uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, he gives us the ending to Stephen King's The Shining, um, in which Jack, when he was possessed by the Overlook, and it was a possession here. Um, in the Kubrick's version, it's different. It's just like his soul has been chipped away and corrupted. You don't really get the sense of possession. You just feel like finally like the, 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 the tethers to his humanity were just completely dissolved by the acid in the, the, the hotel, whereas in the book, the man is constantly assaulted and barraged by these ghosts and the temptation, and finally his defenses are weakened and he is filled up with the ghosts and the evil from the Overlook. He is possessed. There is a possession um, there. And in the end of the book, he is able to fight off that possession long enough to redeem himself and save his family. So Jack is not as much of a monster in the book as he is in the Kubrickian version. And what Flanagan does here is he is able to give, really he's able to give Stephen King the ending to the story and he's able to give Danny his his book father's fate it just it, it to me like i was just like i i was just being i was just being like just hit with all of these different oh my god the, the, here's from the book oh my god it's a response to the movie oh my god it's you know 40 years of, of cultural criticism that that's finally being you know rectified for for stephen king right now it was just so maybe that is distracting for some people um it wasn't for me um you know i the problem for me though um, is I don't know for me if giving Danny Jack's ending from the book is appropriate for to give to Danny is I don't know if it's an appropriate ending to give to Danny for the Danny character in Doctor Sleep. That's my question. I don't know um, because I really liked what Ewan McGregor was was doing with this role. And I really like the, the Danny character. Um, so I, I don't know if he should die um, that way. I mean, Jack gets punished. Part of Jack's death is that it's punishment for, for succumbing to the temptation. For um, living a life that had been defined by rage and, and the, the, the sins of his past. Um, so... If I apply that logic to Danny, there is, there is reason for him to have to die, okay? Because Flanagan did make the decision to include the scene of Danny's rock bottom moment of the one night stand and the suggestion that his lack of action and his selfishness led to the death of the woman who died from overdose and the child um, who was not checked on in and 
died from malnourishment, um, which is horrifying if you think about it. That the the final days of this child were locked in a room with um, his dead mother, the terror and the pain, um, and the and the vulnerability and the helplessness. It's an awful. It's an the suggestion is awful, and Danny created that. So there is, you can say that yeah, you know what, Danny did need to as. Dick said he had to pay his debt. So you can make the argument. I just got to say that I, I, I prefer the ending of the book that is, uh, it's hopeful, where Danny has a family. Danny, you know, so again, going back to the inversion, the original book ends with the, the destruction of the family and the, the companion piece ends with um, the family rising from the ashes. Um, Abra's family is alive um, the, the mother and father have not been killed uh, Danny is now a part of their family and he's going to be a living mentor to, to Abra that's hopeful here um, you know Abra's going to be fine but I mean you got like she lost her dad in a very brutal way um, and Danny died at the same time so I, I don't know I mean it makes sense within what we were given in this movie it's just a question of like whether you like it um it's, it works it, it it does work um so I, I can't say that it doesn't work i just kind of i kind of wanted danny to have a happy ending and i mean we are given somewhat of a happy ending with him i mean he sees the vision of his mother um as he burns um and he's able to destroy the overlook for good um so there is that as well the overlook is dead um so, and then we get to see Abra just being a, a badass the way that Danny was. And there's something to be said. I just, I love the idea of these children being able to literally dispatch the ghosts with ease. I, I just, again, going back to the, the terror versus the triumph, I love the triumph of that. Um, okay, so I just want to talk very quickly. Um, I, I mentioned New King, and I talked about the rhythms and the patterns of watching a, a Stephen King uh, book. It, mimicking the, the, the experience of, of reading a Stephen King book. Um, you know, we got it in moments like when Danny was interacting with Billy and he was talking with uh, John Dalton at the AA meeting. Um, I had a big smile on my face because in the book, this is when the quartet starts to form, okay? And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Stephen King has... Uh, based his career on the belief that when you start to surround yourself with others um, and you allow yourself to be part of community, that is when you're going to be able to combat whatever the challenge is, right? So we see that in first, uh, we, we really see that in Salem's Lot, when the, the people of the town start to form together and trust each other to be able to combat um, the vampires. The, I think the biggest one early in his career is the stand, um, but the the term katet um, comes from the Dark Tower, um, and it's uh, one made from many. Um, it's 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 a family that you create for yourself, and um, so the inversion of that, of course, is The Shining, where it is that you have a literal family, and what happens when one person 
um, retracts from that family. Um, and what happens to the family and the person is, is then punished for it. Uh, so here we start to get this creation of a quartet. And in Dr. Sleep, the book, it's a very strong quartet that includes uh, Dan and Abra and Billy and John Dalton and Abra's parents and her grandmother. Um, so like everyone just starts working together to take out the true knot. And I was... I was, I was getting like really excited. Oh my God, like, you know, Flanagan's actually gonna do this. Um, but, you know, we don't really, we don't really get that. Um, and I understand that for, you know, time's sake, um, that, that we can't have all these characters. And, and so Bruce Greenwood's character, Bruce Greenwood, who, by the way, um, is a stealth perfect choice for like a Stephen King character. He's now playing a second Stephen King character and just something about the guy just, he is a Stephen King character. So um, I was excited when he was cast as John Dalton. I was excited to see him in, in, in the movie. I, I would have liked to have seen him more. Unfortunately, we didn't get him. Um, but what was cool was that he was able to function as an Ullman character um, to play against Danny in Danny's redemption story of Jack. Um, so again, as I said in my Doctor Sleep uh, book review that we have, uh, two characters who offer the, the two Torrances a job opportunity um, in a mountain town um, with sobriety. And uh, here we get John Dalton playing that role. Um, okay, and so now what I wanna do, I wanna talk a little bit about uh, The True Knot and Rebecca Ferguson and Rose the Hat. So in the book, the True Knot are really pathetic creatures. They are um, they are they are parasites. Uh, they are presented as really kitschy. Um, you know, they King really plays up the imagery of them in uh, you know just wearing sweaters that you'd get from gas stations on turnpikes um, with novelty hats, um, just kind of. Looking like the the harmless elderly um, that you see in in, in um, like McDonald's at uh, a turnpike, right? And King does a really good job with this description, <coughs> and Flanagan does away with all of that, um, and and leaves behind the 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 carny nicknames, and it's a weird blend of the two. I don't know if it if it works as well. Um, so in this case, I don't know if you know. If Rose the Hat, like it, something something gets lost in translation. I, I should say because you, you strip away all of those kind of carny elements, but you leave just this one. Um, I, I think that it kind of becomes a little uh, a, a little goofy, or at least runs the risk of being a little bit goofy. Um, but with that said, um, I had problems with Rose the Hat, the book character. When I first read the book, I thought that she she was cheesy. Um, but she has been completely redeemed by Rebecca Ferguson's performance who how do you follow up The Shining knowing that you are going to have to play the antagonist following a movie that has one of the most memorable performances of all time with Jack Nicholson and you're going to have to be the bad guy in its sequel how do you do it? Rebecca Ferguson said I don't care I'm just going to be Rebecca Ferguson and kick ass, and she did. Um, she was 
alluring and uh, vampiric. Um, she was wily and intelligent, incredibly charismatic. Um, and she just owned that role. And I just want to take that moment to, to give her props because she was great. Um, Ewan McGregor, of course, was, when he, you know, knowing that he was going to be cast as a recovering alcoholic, um, you know, it was, you knew that he was going to do well with the part. Um, and he did. He was great. And uh, Kylie Curran as Abra um, was awesome. And one thing that you love about the Abra character is that she is um, tough and she's not scared. She is, again, the inversion of Danny from The Shining. She is, um, she's more in possession of, of her life um, and she's just not going to have anyone terrorize it. She's going to put them on the ropes. It was great. Great. Okay. So guys, I, uh, let me see. I have been talking for about an hour. Um, and so what I am going to do now, I'm just going to say this. I think this movie is going to be celebrated for a long time. I think that it will have a second wind um, and it will have its second life um, later down the road. Unfortunately, it wasn't now. But I know that Stephen King and Mike Flanagan, I read that they were talking about their next project together. Also, there has been some discussion that Warner Brothers already greenlit something called Holleran, um, which would be a prequel to uh, The Shining that I, that Flanagan, I don't know if he would write and direct, I don't know if he would just produce. I don't know if that's gonna happen now that the box office wasn't so great. And personally, I don't need to see that. I do want to see Mike Flanagan tackle more Stephen King stories. Um, and the one that is coming to mind, I put this out on Twitter, who do you want, what story do you want to see him do? Um, the one that keeps coming to mind over and over and over again is Duma Key. And I've been thinking about that book a lot since I last read it. I famously did not like it the first time I read it. The purposes of the podcast for rereading it um, again, I really enjoyed it. Um, and since then, it's been something that has been on my mind a lot. I find it haunting. I find it heartfelt. I find it tragic. It is sweet. Um, and I think that it, it speaks to the things that Mike Flanagan is able to do very well. He is able to give the horror and the heartfelt and to be able to, and he's able to create setting um, and tragedy so well. And all of these things are in the ingredients for Duma Key. Um, so I would love, I would love to see that. And the um, uh, Radio Mike, I think is the character. Um, so in Duma Key, Edgar, the main character, um, is a is a family man who unfortunately undergoes a, a horrible accident. Um, and make a long story short, there's a divorce, and he has to start his he has to start over. He has to start his life over, and he goes to Florida. Um, and, he, and he's living in this house on, on the beach and he befriends uh, a, a neighbor and so much of the story has to do with just their friendship um, but the character is, is, is memorable and he's, he's great Mike I, I believe is his name is but he would be played phenomenally by one of the members of the true not I, I should have looked up the actor's name I, I can't think of his name but the, um, 
He's one of the members of the True Knot in in this uh, movie, but he was also the caretaker in the Haunting of Hill House. Um, I think that he would he would own that role, and I think about that particular you know go, going back to the Haunting of Hill House and how much time I spend thinking about it. Um, but that's another example um, where I just think about the eight minute monologue that that actor delivered um, in the Haunting of Hill House. And it was beautiful and captivating. And I really like that actor. I think that he would do really well in that particular role. Um, so I, I think that Duma Key, I, I, if Flanagan doesn't give us Duma Key, I will be upset because now I've gotten my hopes up. I think also he would uh, do well with Bag of Bones. I know that there was a Pierce Brosnan Bag of Bones on A&E, maybe, back in the early 2000s. I did not see it. Um, but again, knowing that uh, Flanagan does a really good job with with um, the ghosts, the, the, the metaphor of, of ghosts um, being our, our trauma that haunt us, uh, he would do well to do uh, bag of bones. Um, I think that you know a quiet, introspective look at Dark Score Lake, um, where one man is is trying to overcome his grief while at the same time um, trying to have this this town and this place overcome its historical grief is something that he would do very, very, very well. So those are my two recommendations for Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan, if you are listening to this, please, please adapt those two, but do Duma Key first. Another thing is that, you know, I want to see a, a, just a good tropical um, Floridian gothic pirate ghost painter artist story. You know, I want to see that. I want to see that done by Mike Flanagan. Okay, guys, now it's time to talk about the Easter eggs. And Easter eggs there are. So... When I spoiler for Gerald's Game on Netflix, which you can see, also written and directed by Mike Flanagan, there is a line delivery by Bruce, Ween, uh, Bruce, Breen, Bruce Greenwood, that uh, the perfect actor for a Stephen King uh, role, who plays Gerald, the ghost or mental interpretation of Gerald um, is talking to Jesse, played by Carla Giugino. And he utters the line and just sticks it in to the, 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 the dialogue that he's giving. He says, um, all things follow the beam. And when he said that, I nearly spit my drink out. And the, 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 no one dwelled on it. He just said it and he kept on going. And I said, oh my God, my plan again. That was such an amazing Dark Tower reference. I couldn't believe it to hear that uttered out loud. Um, he did it again. <laughs> to have Dick Holleran, um, once he started talking about how things come around, I like started getting excited. Like, I knew what he was gonna say. I, like, I, I, even if he wasn't gonna say it, I knew that in that moment it was still a Stephen King Easter egg because it was referencing the primary theme that Stephen King has um, uh, worked on and analyzed and explored um, for the entirety of his career. So when Dick Holleran is, is talking about um, you know things coming around, um, and then he says, Ka is a wheel, and it all comes around again, 
just to hear him say Kai is a wheel um, and audio audience members aren't going to understand it I'm not even sure if they're going to pick up on it um, all things serve the beam I'm sorry I, I knew I knew that I screwed that up as I said all things serve the beam all things serve the beam for him to say that but yeah no when Dick Holleran said um, Kai is a wheel that was such an incredible uh, Easter egg so slick um, also uh, the Lamurk Corporation to have that be the the place where um, uh, Bradley uh, Trevor um, is brutally murdered, horrible scene. Um, but the Lamurk Corporation is one of the subsidiaries of uh, North Central Positronics, or vice versa. North Central Positronics is a uh, subsidiary of Lamurk Industries. All these evil shell corporations um, doing the the bidding of the Crimson King from the Dark Tower story. So this is like crazy stuff. Um, I mean, those are some major deep cuts uh, that just make me so happy. And then there's, of course, uh, the um, Bradley Trevor. His baseball number is number 19, which is an unlucky number for Stephen King characters. Again, so we have um, a couple. We, we now have three uh, Dark Tower references. Um, and then in Abra's bedroom, there's an A above her bed, but there's a, a balloon animal right in front of it that... It's not supposed to be a K, but it's kind of in the shape of a K. And it together, it spells the word Ka, which again is another reference. Um, and then um, in the conclusion of the movie, when Ghost Danny is talking to Abra, he says something like, you're one of the good ones. Um, you know how to stand or you know that you should stand like or some, he, he basically said he said something along those lines which is not just a reference to the book, The Stand, but it's Mike Flanagan demonstrating a deep understanding of the point of what that particular book is, um, which really is, is that, is that it's not about fighting evil. It's not about taking it to the evil. It's just about saying no. It's just about taking a stand. Um, but that reference there clearly was an Easter egg to the stand. So guys, Dr. Sleep, it's really good. And I'm very excited to see whatever um, Mike Flanagan has next. So if you, have, if you didn't like the book, um, or if you've never read the book and you, 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 you read that like no one's going to see this movie and you might think that it's uh, indicative of quality, it's not indicative of quality. You gotta go see it. It's really good. As long as you understand that you're not seeing The Shining Part 2. You are seeing a companion piece to it that speaks to the things that you know of The Shining, that asks you to think of it in a new light, um, that, again, zigs where The Shining's X. Everybody, that's all I got for this week. Thank you for joining me. And I don't know what's going to come next. Um, but may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. And for all that we struggle Oh, we pretend You know, you know, you know